you're listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name's Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, and I am the director of the Burn Center there. Uh, today, the topic that I would like to talk about is that of abdominal compartment syndrome. Abdominal compartment syndrome uh, is uh, the presence of elevated intra-abdominal pressures, and it's been commonly recognized as a, a factor contributing to the morbidity and mortality of the critically ill and injured patient for quite some time. Uh, the actual syndrome of abdominal compartment syndrome really occurs when the increased intra-abdominal pressure or the intra-abdominal hypertension develops to the point where it causes physiological embarrassment of several of uh, vital uh, organs. Uh, for instance, uh, decreased cardiac return resulting in poor cardiac output, hypotension, uh, respiratory embarrassment, and renal failure. It would appear that uh, increased intra-abdominal pressure is perhaps more common than many of us may have thought. Um, epidemiological studies have found that in the critically ill patients, the prevalence of increased intra-abdominal pressure or increased, uh, or increased abdominal hypertension um, occurs between 2 and 33% of patients. Uh, now, what, how do we really define an increase in intra-abdominal pressure? Well, it's really defined as an uh, intra-abdominal pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. And abdominal compartment syndrome, therefore, is defined as having increased intra-abdominal pressure, that is, an intra-abdominal pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, and one or more organs that have failed because of that increased intra-abdominal pressure. It's that second element, that end organ dysfunction, that's important because what happens is that people start getting into the notion of good number, bad number. Now we have these Foley catheters that are on the market that you can transduce to a uh, arterial line setup on your monitor and you can actually measure continuously intra-abdominal pressure. And uh, what that does is it puts people into the mindset that I have a good number and a bad number, and that a number greater than 20 is always bad, and a number always less than 20 is always good. And we're going to go through and define that that's not particularly the case. If you have an intra-abdominal pressure of 25 or even 30, but you have no respiratory embarrassment, no cardiovascular compromise, and inadequate urine output, is that somebody who you would define as abdominal compartment syndrome or that you would need to do something about? And the answer is no. You don't need to intervene on that patient. You certainly need to monitor that patient, but you wouldn't say that patient has uh, abdominal compartment syndrome. Well, what is the intra-abdominal pressure? And that would seem to be reasonably obvious, but that's the pressure concealed with the abdominal cavity. And it's really determined by a couple of factors. And this seems reasonably obvious, but when you approach these patients in the intensive care unit, it always helps if you break it down and try to evaluate what are the potential problems here. Well, what are the three factors? The first is the abdominal organ volume. Okay. How much are my viscera taking up? How, how my, things like my liver, my spleen, uh, my colon, and small bowel. The next thing is the presence of space-occupying substances, and this could include things such as blood, ascites, other types of fluid, air, or tumor mass. And the third is the abdominal wall compliance. Okay, now let's think about that for a second. We have our normal organs, we have things inside the abdomen which aren't our normal organs, blood, fluid, ascites, and then we have the abdominal wall compliance. Now, abdominal wall compliance really is how elastic, elastic and compliance have a mathematical relationship my abdomen is. Well, what can change 
for instance, my abdominal wall compliance. Well, one could be things such as the mass, whether somebody has a large panis, somebody leaning on their abdomen. We see this a lot, uh, or leaning on chest, uh, particularly in the operating room. Anesthesia will kindly remind the, the, the resident of the medical student not to lean on the chest, um, but also fluid resuscitation. If somebody's getting... Um, uh, a lot of fluid and they have a lot of abdominal wall edema, that's going to decrease the abdominal wall compliance. And that can certainly contribute to the development of an increased intra-abdominal pressure because what happens as uh, uh, the uh, uh, viscera will swell, as there's increased blood or ascites, the abdomen will begin to distend. Uh, but if the abdomen can't distend as easily because of decreased compliance, you're going to see a more rapid increase in pressure. Other things that could do it, particularly in the patients that I care for on a routine and daily basis, are burns. If you have uh, a burn to your uh, abdominal wall, uh, the uh, uh, tissue gets very leathery and it actually will contract and re re produce really marked reduction uh, in the abdominal wall compliance. Now, we've talked before and in previous podcasts about things about escherotomies and circumferential burns, but here's a situation where by even scoring uh, a third-degree burn of the abdomen, we're going to improve abdominal wall compliance, and that can certainly help with uh, abrogating or reducing the likelihood of having something like increased abdominal pressures or abdominal compartment syndrome. The normal adult intradominal pressure is typically less than 5 millimeters of mercury, but this can be non-pathologically increased, particularly in the obese adult. Intradominal pressure is in the typical post-laparotomy patient is between 5 and 15. So again, even the routine patient coming in uh, with a colectomy or what have you will have some element of increased intradominal pressure. In the critically ill patient, who is systematically hypoperfused and within shock, the intradominal pressure can be between 15 and 20, and this is not an uncommon finding uh, in the critically ill patient. And as we've said, elevation of the intradominal pressure can result in physiological embarrassment of multiple organ systems, namely cardiac, pulmonary, renal, GI, hepatic, central nervous system, and certainly abdominal wall uh, perfusion. And uh, each uh, organ system has its own uh, vulnerabilities and how they will present. Let's take time for a small timeout. Welcome back. Let's get uh, into what are the uh, impairments by each organ system by having elevated intradominal pressure. Let's look first at the effect of increased abdominal pressure on the cardiovascular system. And this is not something that is uh, rather new, but what happens is rising uh, intradominal pressure increases the intrathoracic pressure by elevation of the diaphragm, and this increased intrathoracic pressure therefore reduces venous return. Okay, so what happens is you're putting pressure on the vena cava. Uh, blood cannot return to uh, the heart as well, and basically that does what? That reduces your preload, and that reduces your cardiac output. Uh, furthermore, um, you see compression of both the aorta and the pulmonary parenchyma uh, due to this increase in the diaphragm and, and compression of the, the pulmonary parenchyma, and that results in increases in systemic vascular resistance as well. Looking at the pulmonary system, and again, you have to think, if you're inflating the abdomen uh, with a fluid or edema or air, that diaphragm is going to go in a cephalad direction, and that, again, is going to put uh, increase in intrathoracic pressure uh, through the elevation of the diaphragm. 
Uh, and as we just mentioned, what this does is this actually puts compression or squeezes the lung parenchyma, and that will result in problems like uh, atelectasis, decrease in diffusion capacity and carbon dioxide diffusion capacity across the alveolar capillary membrane. Uh, so you're going to have a problem with oxygenation as well as getting rid of carbon dioxide, uh, as well as increase in uh, problems with a shunt and alveolar dead space. And uh, these kind of dysfunctions can be seen as with intradominal pressures as low as 15 millimeters of mercury. And this will be aggravated in uh, a case of hypovolemia. We're going to talk about this a little bit later on. Is Again, we don't want to get into that good number or bad number because the overall physiological status of the patient can make these systems more aggravated. Uh, so if you have somebody who's hypotensive and an elevated intradominal pressure, certainly compression on the lung parenchyma and the vena cava are going to be more pronounced, uh, even though when you're kind of in the okay zone uh, by looking at just the numbers of intradominal pressure. One of the earlier signs that we see, uh, well, let's, let's go back on, on talking about the, the, the pulmonary system. What happens if you've got somebody on a mechanical ventilator and they're developing intradominal compartment syndrome? We're talking that they're having problems with diffusion. We're going to see perhaps uh, decreases in their oxygen saturation or their PO2. Their PCO2 may rise. But also what you're going to see is you see a decreased compliance, uh, not only of the abdomen, but also of the thoracic bellow system. And uh, we've talked about this in other podcasts about what is peak inspiratory pressure. There's there's a lot of emphasis on peak inspiratory pressure nowadays, and particularly in the management of ARDS, uh, but uh, we focus a lot on this. And peak inspiratory pressure, uh, there's an equation for this, and the peak inspiratory pressure is defined by the equation, and I can't write this down for you to look at, but it's the tidal volume over the compliance of the lung and the thorax. That product, uh, that, that dividend, uh, added to the product of the resistance of the airways and the flow of the gas. But let's take the first part of that equation, tidal volume over the compliance of the lung and the thorax. So at a given tidal volume, as the, the compliance of the thorax decreases, the peak inspiratory pressure is going to go up. Uh, and what's going to decrease the thoracic compliance? Well, the diaphragm being pushed in a cephalad direction by increasing abdominal pressure is going to drop your thoracic compliance. Therefore, at a given set tidal volume on your mechanical ventilator, you're going to see elevations of your peak inspiratory pressure. And that's going to be a manifestation you're going to see on your ventilators and certainly can aggravate some of the problems uh, in a critically ill patient. Now, looking at the renal system, low urine output is one of the earliest signs that we see with intradominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome. Well, why is this? Well, as the abdominal pressure increases, uh, the renal artery blood flow uh, is, uh, decreases, and you see compression of the renal vein. So what happens is you see uh, renal dysfunction and failure. Even if the mean pressure in the renal artery decreases, or excuse me, stays the same, say the mean arterial pressure in the renal artery is 65, and prior to the development of intradominal pressure, the patient has a central venous pressure of 5. Okay, so 65, 5. The difference there is 60 and blood flows by the gradient. So your differential in pressure there is roughly 60 millimeters of mercury. So if you think about a truck rolling downhill, there's your gradient, 60. Now, let's keep the mean arterial pressure in that renal artery the same, just for the sake of this discussion. And we increase the abdominal pressure. And if you've never seen a, a renal vein or a vena cava, it's very, very thin, very easily to compress with extrinsic compression versus an artery. An artery, you can still compress, but there's much more substance to an artery, uh, less likely to compress. And the, the pressure pushing back on an artery is much higher. 
And you think about, you know, somebody's got a pressure of 120 over 80, you've got to overcome that pressure to occlude that vessel. Now, let's take our uh, patient who still has a mean pressure in that renal artery of 65 millimeters of mercury. We increase the intradominal pressure, say, up to 20. That is going to push on that renal vein. So now the CVP, the, uh, the pressure inside that renal vein, is now 20. So your difference there is 65 minus 20 is, what, 45 uh, versus the 60 we had before the development of intradominal pressure. So again, you think about your truck rolling down the hill, that's a, that's a less steep of a hill. That will decrease renal blood flow. Uh, and therefore, that is the initiation of how we can see problems uh, with the development of increased intradominal pressure. Now, oliguria can develop, uh, or low urine output, can develop with an intradominal pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury. And we could see totally anuria, absence of any urine output, at a pressure of 30 millimeters of mercury. Uh, that is if the patient is normal volemic. Now, diminished renal blood, uh, excuse me, uh, diminished renal perfusion pressure and the uh, renal filtration gradient have been proposed as key factors in the development of intradominal pressure-induced renal failure. Now, what is a filtration gradient? Now, that's the mechanical force across the glomerulus and equals the difference between the glomerular filtration pressure and the proximal tubule pressure. Now, what is that? Now, remember how the kidney works. You have the glomerulus, which the blood vessels flow into, and they have a certain pressure, and fluid is pushed out through the glomerulus into the proximal tubule of the nephron. Okay, and again, much like that kidney, things have to flow from a, a system of high pressure to low pressure. Therefore, your filtration gradient is defined as your glomerular filtration pressure minus your proximal tubule pressure. Now, in the absence of intradominal pressure, this proximal tubule pressure is basically the same as your intradominal pressure. And therefore, your glomerular filtration pressure is really defined as your mean arterial pressure minus your intradominal pressure, much like we said earlier. Um, and uh, the uh, uh, filtration gradient can be calculated really by the formula of uh, mean arterial pressure minus twice your intradominal pressure. So from that equation, it's pretty obvious that changes in the intradominal pressure have a really greater impact on renal function and urine production than changes in the mean arterial pressure when you have an elevation of your intradominal pressure. Now let's focus on the impact of increased intradominal pressure on the GI system. And what you have to think about there is what, as we compress the bowel and the mesentery of the bowel, what is that doing to the viability and the health of the small uh, 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 bowel as well as the colon? And the most obvious there is a reduction of mesenteric blood flow. And this can appear uh, with intradominal pressures as low as 10 millimeters of mercury. The celiac artery blood flow can be reduced by up to 43%, and the superior mesenteric artery blood flow can be reduced by as much as 69% in the presence of intradominal pressures of about 40 millimeters of mercury. The negative effect of intradominal pressure on mesenteric perfusion are augmented by the presence of hypovolemia and hemorrhage. Okay, so that seems to be reasonably obvious, and this is why I want to get away from a bad number, good number type added, uh, uh, effect, because if you are increasing your abdominal pressure and you have a patient who's already hypovolemic or uh, from a, a loss of fluids, burn patient, hemorrhage from a trauma patient, what have you, uh, the impact of the intradominal pressure on 
uh, bowel ischemia or, or bowel blood flow is going to be, the impact is going to be greater in the hypovolemic patient than the resuscitated uvolemic patient. Uh, an increase uh, intradominal pressure of 20 millimeters of mercury can decrease intestinal mucosa perfusion and has been speculated to be a possible mechanism for the subsequent development of bacterial translocation, sepsis, multi-organ failure. Bacterial translocation of the mesenteric lymph nodes has been demonstrated to occur in the presence of hemorrhage with intradominal pressures as low as 10 millimeters of mercury. So what, this, what we're saying here is that as we increase the uh, intradominal pressures uh, as low as 10, what that does is that decreases the renal blood, that decreases perfusion to the bowel and may aggravate uh, bacterial translocation. Well, why is that important? Why is that relevant here? Well, when you have bacterial translocation, the bacteria basically translocate and they go to the mesenteric lymph nodes. And this has been well studied and well demonstrated and well published that when you get bacterial translocation to the mesenteric lymph nodes, you basically, uh, those lymph nodes begin to get angry and they produce things like pro-inflammatory cytokines, TNF-alpha, interleukin-2, interleukin-6, and so forth. And that creates a surge response. Well, when somebody has a surge response, what do they do? They vasodilate, they get hypotensive, and what do we do? We give them more fluid. What does that do to our intradominal pressure? What does that do to our visceral edema? Well, the visceral edema will probably get worse because we're giving them more volume. What does that do to our intradominal pressure? That increases it. What does that do to our mesenteric blood flow? That'll decrease it. What does that do to our, our integrity of our mucosa, of our bowel? Decreases it. And then you get into this, this circle, like a dog chasing its tail. And this is called a positive feedback cycle. So you really have to not look at these things in silos, but you need to figure out how they're interrelated. Uh, so again, uh, going down this um, uh, down this pathway of inter elevated intradominal pressures can get to be a rather slippery slope, and we can actually make our our uh, treatment uh, worse than our disease if we're not very careful. Talking about the patient who has potential traumatic brain injury, uh, what is the impact of uh, elevated intradominal pressures on the central nervous system? Well, cerebral perfusion and function can be affected directly by the presence of increased intradominal pressure. Increased intrathoracic pressure really does impair venous uh, return from the cranium and that decreases uh, cerebral venous blood flow. We talk a lot about uh, intracranial pressures, but uh, people are starting to look at in a traumatic brain injury, not only the pressures uh, in the brain, but also um, the, the cerebral perfusion and the cerebral perfusion and blood flow uh, in regards to oxygen delivery as well as mitochondrial viability. Uh, and as you increase intrathoracic pressures, you are going to decrease uh, the um, uh, blood flow through the uh, venous system uh, draining the brain. Therefore, elevations in intradominal pressure will then increase what? Intrathoracic pressure. That's going to increase the pressure uh, in the uh, central veins in the vena cava. That's going to result in a decrease uh, in uh, blood flow through the uh, veins dra draining the brain and uh, may result in uh, increased pressures within the cranium and result in sustained reductions in cerebral perfusion pressures. Hypovolemia which typically occurs in patients who may have intradominal pressures, may uh, worsen already marginal cerebral perfusion pressures. Looking at the abdominal wall, we said with the three factors that contribute to the physiology of abdominal compartment syndrome are uh, abdominal organ volume, how big are my viscera, uh, 
and I mean my abdominal viscera, my liver swollen, my bowels, and so forth. Um, what is the space occupying lesion, blood, or fluid, or whatever? But then we go back to abdominal wall compliance. Now we're going to focus on a little bit on that abdominal wall. Visceral edema, such as um, it may occur with large resuscitations, decrease in uh, abdominal wall compliance that may occur uh, with burns, uh, abdominal packs, interperitoneal fluid, bowel distension uh, of the abdomen. Uh, those are going to all affect this. Abdominal wall edema, secondary to shock, and fluid resuscitation will decrease the abdominal compliance. And therefore, that's going to aggravate an already increased uh, abdominal pressure. And that's going to reduce the blood flow to the abdominal wall as well. Rectus sheath blood flow can be decreased by almost 58% of baseline uh, at an intradominal pressure as low as 10 millimeters of mercury and to 20 millimeters of baseline at 40 millimeters of mercury. Well, why is that relevant? Why are we looking at uh, rectus blood flow with uh, increases in intradominal pressure? Well, that's going to result in impaired wound healing because wound healing does depend on blood flow. And therefore, when you have patients who have elevated intradominal pressures, there's a high rate of fascial dehiscence and predilection for the development of necrotizing fasciitis. Uh, and uh, this is clearly identified in patients whose abdomens are closed under tension uh, in the cases of intradominal uh, hypertension. As a result of uh, significant variations that exist in patient physiology, a single threshold value of intradominal pressure cannot be applied to global decision-making about all critically ill patients. This is what we're trying to avoid is this idea of a good number, bad number. Uh, intradominal pressures lack sufficient sensitivity and specificity at clinically appropriate thresholds of 10 to 25 millimeters of mercury to be really useful as resuscitation endpoints. This is why, at least in, in, in my simple brain, I, I don't understand the real value of having a fully catheter that can serially, continuously measure intradominal pressures because what we need to look at are all the other physiological variables that we've already discussed. Is the patient making urine? Is the patient's peak inspiratory pressures okay? Uh, uh, is the uh, elevation of intradominal pressure uh, impairing cardiac return and therefore cardiac output? Um, and so we, we really want to avoid that uh, good number, bad number. Uh, idea. Attempts to improve the sensitivity of intradominal pressure have led to its use uh, in the calculation assessment of something called a abdominal perfusion pressure as a more sensitive predictor of illness and resuscitation. So we have to be kind of thinking about what do we do in the case of someone who has a traumatic brain injury? Well, we use something called the cerebral perfusion pressure. We take the uh, mean arterial pressure and uh, look at the uh, ICP, and then uh, you could have somebody who has a low ICP but a low mean arterial pressure, and we say, well, that's probably not enough uh, blood flow to give to the injured brain. Well, in this case, uh, it's a similar type of uh, idea using abdominal perfusion pressure is that you take the mean arterial pressure minus the intradominal uh, pressure, and this may be a more sensitive uh, marker uh, to what's going on in the abdomen because, again, somebody could have a hypotension, they could have a mean pressure in 40 and have an intradominal pressure of, say, um, uh, uh, 10 or 20, and that's going to result in a low abdominal perfusion pressure. Um, abdominal perfusion pressure has been demonstrated to be superior to both intradominal pressure and global resuscitation endpoints such as pH, base deficit, uh, arterial lactate, uh, and its ability to predict patient outcome. Let's take a small time out and then when we come back we'll talk about the presentation and diagnosis of patients with abdominal compartment syndrome. Welcome back. 
what we want to talk about now is when we should consider uh, uh, increased intradominal hyper um, uh, increased intradominal pressure or intradominal hypertension. And really, in um, any patient who presents with one or more of the following, we should uh, really be kind of thinking about uh, intradominal hypertension. Anybody who has prolonged shock, uh, such as acidosis, hypothermia, hemorrhage, coagulopathy. Anybody who's had uh, visceral ischemia or perforation, traumatic injuries, obviously, sepsis, massive fluid resuscitation. And uh, what's interesting is the number yeah, used is um, somebody who's had more than five liters of resuscitation in greater than 24 hours. I don't know how many patients I've seen have gotten five liters within an hour. Uh, ruptured abdominal aneurysms, uh, retroperitoneal hemorrhage, abdominal neoplasms, liver dysfunction, ascites, pancreatitis, burns, certainly, in ileus and patients who have gastroparesis. There are several grades of intradominal hypertension, and that's defined um, by really uh, uh, intradominal hypertension. If somebody has intradominal pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury or a abdominal perfusion pressure of less than 60 millimeters of mercury uh, really have uh, early uh, intradominal hypertension. But the number that you may not be common to see is that abdominal perfusion pressure of 60 millimeters of mercury. Grade 1 uh, uh, intradominal um, hypertension is those who have a uh, um, an IAP between 12 and 15, grade 2 if it's between 16 and 20, uh, grade 3 is 21 to 25, and grade 4 is if you've got intradominal pressure greater than 25 millimeters of mercury. Um, it's kind of interesting to have these grading systems, but again, we want to be treating physiology and treating patients. We don't want to be treating one single uh, number. Now, we said abdominal compartment syndrome is intradominal hypertension with an end organ dysfunction. So um, uh, dysfunction could be recognized uh, uh, or uh, untreated intradominal um, hypertension, but it's defined by a sustained or repeated intradominal pressure of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury and or an abdominal perfusion pressure of less than 60 millimeters of mercury in association with new onset single or multiple organ system failure. Abdominal compartment syndrome is not graded, but rather it's considered an all-or-nothing phenomena. Abdominal compartment syndrome is characterized clinically um, uh, by um, one of the following. Patients who have metabolic acidosis, despite what appears to be ongo ongoing inadequate resuscitation, oliguria, despite volume depletion, elevated peak airway pressures, hypercarbia, refractory to increased mechanical ventilation. And this is due to uh, the issues we talked about, about uh, elevation of the uh, diaphragm resulting in shunt and, and alveolar atelectasis, hypoxemia, refractory to oxygen and positive end expiratory pressure, and certainly intradominal, intracranial hypertension. Now, I would put all of this in, in a little bit of... Um, uh, context when applying these to patients. Now, abdominal compartment syndrome may be ca characterized further by primary, secondary, or recurrent. Now, what's primary? Well, primary abdominal compartment syndrome develops due to conditions associated with abdominal pelvic regional injuries or diseases requiring emergent surgical or angiographic interventions such as damage control laparotomies, bleeding, pelvic fractures, retroperitoneal hematomas, failed non-operative management, uh, or after elective um, uh, abdominal surgery that may occur in cases of peritonitis or liver transplantation. Secondary abdominal compartment syndrome is really um, um, 
represents a complication of uh, shock resuscitation uh, or uh, a, a robust uh, a shock resuscitation. And that leads to interstitial edema, uh, swelling of the organs, and it typically develops due to conditions outside the abdomen. And this can be such as sepsis, capillary leak syndrome, uh, major burns, um, other conditions requiring massive fluid resuscitations. Now, recurrent abdominal compartment syndrome is really a second hit phenomena after the initial recovery from either secondary or, or primary abdominal compartment syndrome. Diagnosis, uh, failure to identify the presence of a, a abdominal compartment syndrome can be associated with the mortality of up to 100%. I mean, if you're not able to ventilate a patient and uh, their cardiac output uh, is a uh, uh, totally embarrassed and, and cardiovascular collapse, that's pretty straightforward, and this can get rather dramatic. Um, clinic exam, clinical examination is notoriously poor at detecting intradominal uh, pressures, and therefore the presence of intradominal hypertension or abdominal compartment syndrome um, may go unrecognized. Now, um, the recognition of the potentially lethal effects of elevated abdominal pressures has led to some of the widespread uh, institution of intravascular bladder pressure measurements. Uh, and how this is done is, as I said, there are uh, systems where you can, uh, uh, Foley catheter has a pressure transducer, and um, you can end up using uh, continuous monitoring. I'm not exactly sure how you need to use continuous monitoring, but that's just perhaps more of my... Uh, uh, biases. But you can also measure bladder pressure by uh, setting up an arterial line kit and then accessing the aspiration port of a Foley catheter. Uh, and uh, this will allow you, um, if uh, you infuse uh, 50 milliliters of normal saline, um, um, from, uh, this will allow you uh, to um, measure a, a pressure inside the abdomen, but you need to make sure that you zero it properly, which is going to be your pubic symphysis in this case, and you're consistent with the amount of fluid that you're inserting into the bladder because, again, you're going to have issues of compliance uh, if you try to put too much or too little. Um, uh, Interdominal pressure should be expressed in terms of millimeters of mercury, and one millimeter of mercury is equivalent to 1.3 centimeters of water. And Measured at end expiration, in the supine position, after ensuring, ensuring that the abdominal muscular contractions are absent with the transducer zeroed at the level uh, we've mentioned it. Some people go uh, mid-axillary line or the pubic symphysis, but perhaps uh, um, uh, the mid-axillary line may be more consistent with what you're using arterially. Serial determinations of uh, interdominal pressure have shown uh, to uh, reliably detect the development of interdominal hypertension and to facilitate early treatment for the development of abdominal compartment syndrome with significant reductions in patient morbidity and mortality. Well, how do you treat it? Um, this is um, something that um, really depends on, on where you're at. So you can certainly do some of the things we've talked about to improve abdominal wall compliance or reduce some of the volume uh, of the uh, visceral contents, paracentesis if you're draining off ascites, gastric suctioning if you've got a, a large distended stomach, rectal enemas and suctioning to try to decrease some of the volume of the colon, sedation, and this will certainly help with the abdominal wall compliance as would uh, pharmacological paralysis. Body positioning as well, may taking some of the pressure off the diaphragm and uh, improving the pulmonary compliance, uh, and that may improve some of your peak inspiratory pressures. Uh, uh, gastroprokinetics, uh, colon prokinetics, diuresis, 
and even things such as continue uh, venous venous hemofiltration. Uh, decompressive laparotomy uh, still remains uh, perhaps the mainstay in uh, refractory and hominal compartment syndrome uh, that can't be managed medically or certainly causing respiratory or cardiovascular embarrassment. And this uh, um, um, uh, results in basically evisceration of the patient, uh, leaving a large midline wound. Uh, which in some cases is left open for days and days. And, and what the problem with this is, is this results in loss of uh, uh, anatomical domain of the abdominal viscera and patients who cannot be closed, uh, certainly on the acute hospitalization. And then patients go to the operating room and have temporary or permanent closures using either absorbable mesh or, or attempted uh, uh, permanent closures uh, using some of the biomaterials that are available, such as human acellular dermis or uh, surgicis or some of those other agents. Um, so it is a, um, you may classify this uh, as a potential complication of aggressive fluid resuscitation. Certainly, um, there are a subset of patients who require large volume resuscitations in order to survive their injuries. However, there are also subsets of patients who develop abdominal compartment syndrome who had a runaway resuscitation uh, and perhaps did not need the magnitude of fluids that they need, and they end up suffering uh, from this complication, which can be significant morbidity uh, when you look at patients who have had their admins opened. They've had, uh, as Tim Fabian uh, has described in the literature, a, a, a planned, staged uh, abdominal closure by putting absorbable mesh in and skin grafting that area. Uh, that allows for a large midline ventral hernia that then is closed about a year later. So the patient really is saddled with a, a debilitating, uh, cosmetically horrible hernia for about a year from the results of a decompressive laparotomy for the treatment of abdominal compartment syndrome. You've been listening to the podcast, uh, Surgery ICU Rounds. Uh, this is available on iTunes by searching ICU Rounds, or it can be caught um, through a direct download on the web at www icrounds.com. My name is Jeff Guy, and thank you for downloading.